0: For IU Semester 2022, it's Identity and Identification, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Kern Goss. Co-hosting this series with me is Amanda Tinkle and Kate O'Brien.
1: Today's guest is Religious Studies Associate Professor Steven Selka. Professor Selka is a cultural anthropologist who focuses his work on religion and race, with emphasis on its ethnographic work in Brazil. He has done extensive work on Afro-Brazilian ethnic and religious culture, specifically with his two books, Religion and the Politics of Ethnic Identity in Bahia, Brazil, and Sisters in Spirit, Religion, Race, and Tourism in Brazil. At IU Bloomington, Professor Selka currently teaches courses on religion, race, and ethnicity, global tourism, religion, and pop culture, as well as a post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction course. Selke's work as an anthropologist highlights an emphasis on humanity and human nature. Today, IU semester speaks with Professor Selke about his work, identity in different religious and ethnic cultures, and what it means to be human.
2: Okay, so I think we are all here now. Um, Today, me,
0: I will be interviewing you, and as well as Curran, who is here. I, uh, sorry, I had to put my roommate's cat away because he likes it when people are talking behind closed doors, Oh, so he likes to <laughs> scream, and I didn't know if that would be fun for the podcast, <laughs> but I'm here now. <laughs> okay. Nice
3: <laughs> okay. to meet you. Nice to meet yeah. you, too.
0: Um,
2: as you know, uh, my name is Amanda. I was in your class post-apocalyptic Dystopian fiction uh, last fall. And you're a professor of religious studies. So I was kind of wondering what your particular fields are of interest and what piqued your interest in this question of what does it mean to be human that we had talked about.
3: Uh yeah, thanks. And thanks for the invitation to do the podcast. I appreciate it and good to see you again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh religious studies is an interdisciplinary field. So a lot of us have, you know, degrees in different uh, in different home disciplines. So I'm a cultural anthropologist and my research interests up until, yeah, you know, for, for most of my career, I've been doing research on religion and race in Brazil. Uh, so the, my interest in uh, the question of what it means to be human and post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, that stuff comes kind of recently um, and isn't really part of my or at least the post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction part of it doesn't really come from my training as a cultural anthropologist. But um, my concern with the question of what it means to be human, I mean, makes sense for an anthropologist since anthropology is the study of human, you know, humanity um, from different, from different angles. Um, so yeah, I think both as an anthropologist and as someone in religious studies, I think, uh, I think that question of what it, what it means to be human resonates in in both of those both of those fields, um, and I, I think my my main interest in that question is, or, or my the way that I want to tackle that question is not so much, you know, answering what it means to be human in uh, in any sort of final final terms, but in, in sort of Pushing us to think about the concept of the human as a historical and relational concept. Um, so I'm you know it, if you ask me what do I think it means to be human? I mean I have my own sort of, I guess personal views on that, but as a scholar, I'm mainly interested in answering the, answering the question so we can sort of get it, what's behind. The question and what's at stake in the question, but um, yeah, to 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 sum up my answer, um, I think you know as it, because of my background in anthropology and because people in religious studies are in are, have always been interested in the question of what it means to be human, and even more so in in recent decades, um, you know, all of that has kind of shaped my interest in that question.
2: Yeah, and um, can you kind of explain? what like is it possible to be viewed as less than human depending on where you're from or anything like that
3: yeah so historically and then this is why i'm talking about uh this is why i talked about thinking about the concept of human uh, of the human historically and relationally so historically there have been people that today we would um uh we would Without a doubt, classify as taxonomically human. You know, like Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, who have been considered either not human or less than human. So, if we look back to the history of uh, European conquest of the Americas, of the transatlantic slave trade, um, you know, the the humanity of indigenous peoples of the Americas and uh, the humanity of of africans enslaved africans was was in question for uh for european um conquistadors and 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 colonists uh, and you know to some extent there was some debate around uh the the extent to which indigenous peoples of the americas were were human but um by and large the the kind of um, the, uh, the the prevailing notion was that you know Europeans were fully were fully human, and other peoples around the globe were you know more distant from being you know more or less distant from being fully human, or uh, were not considered fully human, or were not considered human at all. Um, we're considered closer to to animal. Uh, so yes Uh, and I mean we that sort of gradation of humanness uh, you know continues through the early 20th century in the form of scientific racism right so this was the idea of gradations of humanity or humanness um, was not a kind this this wasn't a kind of fringe thing this was um, something that was part of the European Enlightenment, part of um, uh, part of scientific discourse, and of course continues today through 2022. Um, uh, we may not uh, we may not see these kinds of distinctions between levels of humanness in you know science textbooks or um, in uh, in you know in in other kind of mainstream institutions but it's sort of still embedded in uh the culture and um in sort of in our politics that some people are more more human than others
2: and what kind of were those qualifications historically and even presently for those viewpoints of who was human and who wasn't
3: yeah so uh i mean i can i can talk about that from the perspective of um, well in in the spring, I taught a graduate course on religion and the colonial encounter, so we talked a lot about the ways that um, colonial administrators and uh, missionaries the, the ways that they talked about the people that they encountered in in, in the colonial in the colonial enterprise and the ways that Colonial administrators and missionaries sort of dismissed or um, sort of cast out on the humanity of of those that they were encountering. So um, a lot of the language that we looked at in that seminar, um, the dehumanizing language that we looked at in that seminar had to do with um, framing colonized peoples as savage or irrational you know, there's a whole vocabulary for talking about um I mean savage in the 18th 19th century had a had, had often had a specific meaning i mean we think of that term as um uh we have it gives us a general impression of of someone who is sort of wild and untamed uh but for anthropologists of the 19th century that had a very specific kind of evolutionary savagery was a very specific kind of evolutionary stage So a lot of the distinctions, you know, that were part of the great, you know, that were part of um, ways of classifying people as more or less human had to do with, at least when we're talking about uh, anthropology and, you know, early anthropology and its intersection with the colonial enterprise had to do with people's culture and, and ideas about people's, uh, capacity for rational thought and, and those kinds of things. And then, I mean, of course, when we get, if we look at the others, you know, the more sort of, um, there were also biological distinctions that were key to this, you know, key, key to what we're talking about here. Um, the, early 20th century, the history of eugenics is all about is all about looking at how uh, looking at certain populations or races and how um, more or less pure they are relative to other uh, populations or races, which um, that that purity seems suggests something uh, about, you know, how purely human or or how uh, superior one population or race is compared to compared to others so yeah there were cultural psychological um and biological distinctions that that were um that sort of um that sort of under underwrote this system of classification through which people were slotted as more or less human
2: yeah and so you know I was thinking about eugenics earlier when you brought up like scientific like, distinctions and things like that. And it's, when you think about identifying as something, identifying as a human being, that's not really something that you think about in context of like a personal identity, of, like who you are. Mm-hmm. And it seems like culture has a lot to do with that. But what kind of impact does just this label of being human have on individuals? And even if they don't really realize it, it's a concept influencing their identity?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, so the way, the way that I understand the question is, you know, if we were to make a list of things, if somebody asked us to make a list of five words that describe us, human might not be the, might not be on most of our lists because it seems to be obvious, <laughs> uh, you know, that if we're speaking and interacting, uh, then we must be, we must be human. but. Um, but there are these ways, even in everyday speech that we kind of question and negotiate our humanness. So I sent out a message, a email message with some news and somebody uh, who one of my colleagues called me about it like five minutes later to to talk uh, you know, to talk more, more. So anyway, my impression of that person's response to my email message by, you know, wanting to call me and talk to me about it personally, I thought of that that was a very human response to me. Right. So um, we use the term human, not just to sort of um, to classify people taxonomically as, you know, part of this genus and species, whatever, it also has these kind of evaluative evaluative and um, ideological sort of associations with it. So um, being human, you know it it's uh, that has resonances with you know it, moral and ethical resonances. It has um, a sort of sense of being connected with other with other people, with being empathetic being compassionate right when we say something's inhuman or uh, then what does that mean it's it means it's monstrous it it can mean it's monstrous but it can also mean um uh it can also it can also suggest a lack of compassion or or empathy those kinds of things so i i think um yeah and i and maybe and maybe that's you know the, the the adjective humane and inhumane those those are words that get at that sort of connotation of of, of human um, uh, as, as well um so there's all these ways that the question of of the human and the question of of being a person having rights and um and so on uh do come up in everyday life uh and then i could say something about ai and how that, um, fits into this, but I'll, I'll, I'm anticipating them. I come up in a future question, so I'll, I'll leave it right there.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, given like your experiences with other cultures, and I know you talked a little bit about, um, your experience with like Brazil and religion there, how does the idea of human change based on culture and individual
3: yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a that is a good question, and the answer is kind of complicated. <laughs> so let me let me think. Let me talk about Brazil, which is where I've done nearly all of my ethnographic field work, and in Brazil, I I work on Afro Brazilian religion mainly, and uh, so yeah, the the main Afro Brazilian religion that I that I've studied is candomblé uh, which is similar to uh, Voodoo in Haiti in, uh, Centuria and Centuria or Lukumi in Cuba. And so Candomblé is, it revolves around devotion to to entities or deities called uh, orishas or orishas. And it's, uh, and, and those those entities become embodied in their uh, in, in devotees, so you know, people we often refer to that colloquially as spirit possession. Mm. Uh, so uh, most Candomblé practitioners in Portuguese would say something like incorporation rather than spirit possession, because you know, spirit possession kind of has certain connotations, especially in the U.S. Also in 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 Brazil when talking about the human i when talking about humanness or being human you know i've often heard Blake practitioners say things like we're all human beings right which is a familiar claim that people make all around the globe to say look we're all equal and we all deserve respect so on one level i would say that you know in the uh, kenneblay practitioners understand and use the language of you know they they use the language of us of, of the human in a way that's familiar across the globe right in terms of human rights human respect human dignity uh, and of course in in Brazil as in many places where people practice African derived religions you know there's a certain definite amount of persecution and discrimination against those religions so that's where you know many practitioners would use this language of humanity and uh, humanness and, and respect for the human and for human dignity. So on that, on one level, that, that discourse of, of human dignity, I think um, circulates globally, even if people understand it a little differently or sometimes maybe even significantly differently um, in local, in local places, but where, so at the same time, like in Blake cosmology or, or in the Blake worldview, there are different ideas about what it means to be human in on the level of, you know, the on an ontological level or, or on level of reality.
0: Would you say that that like spirituality that you're talking about heavily informs identity in Brazil and in like Cameron Blake culture?
3: Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, so, yeah, generally and anecdotally. um, So for me, having grown up in the U.S. and mostly suburban spaces in a time where, um, you know, at least like my parents, you know, became disenchanted with religion at some point. Um, So I'm not saying that I grew up in a time when the U.S. was secularizing. Um, because, of course, I grew up in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when, you know, certain forms of religion were actually, you know, sort of growing. Um, But at least the kind of place that I grew up, there was a a sort of um, disenchantment with with religion. Um, But other anthropologists also, like Roberto de Mata, I think, have have written about the ways that, um, oh, sorry, uh, Carlos Brandão, I think, has written about the way that all uh uh all of the pop you know all of the popular religions practice in Brazil sort of share an understanding of this kind of spiritual world that's around us all the time and that has an influence you know, that uh, has a dynamic in, in which the living are in a dynamic relationship. Right. So that's again painting with kind of a broad brush. Uh but um I don't want to, you know, give like this impression that Brazil's this sort of mystical spiritual place in the US is this secularized, you know, that's far too simple. Um, but there is a relative um, depending on what space we're comparing in the US, maybe the university would be one. You know, the university is a is a is a fairly um you know kind of materialist. Rationalist kind of place, compare that with um, with similar spaces in Brazil and the way that those spaces are open to um, the idea of of this dynamic relationship between the spiritual and the material. Uh, there is a relative difference there
0: that's sorry. That's just like so interesting. I've never really heard anybody talk about the spiritual world like that in relation to like the physical world. And it's the way that that, oh, kicked my desk, sorry. Uh, But the way that that can like inform our identity is so important. And I've just never heard anyone talk about that. Kind of changing gears a little bit, but still talking about identity. Um, In your opinion and with your experiences, um, what would you say is the most impactful source of identity across like different
3: societies? capitalism next question <laughs> um, i mean i'm I'm kidding, but uh I feel yeah like in in over the past few centuries uh capitalism mm-hmm. has sort of shaped the structures that we live within and global dynamics to uh, to a Yeah, in unprecedented degree, uh, I I think capitalism, nationalism, I mean, these are all things that I mean, if we look at the headlines today, uh, you know, capitalism, nationalism, these, these are things that are at stake in, um, in many of the, many of the developments that, that are, that are um, that we're all kind of concerned with over the, you know, over the past few years and and past few decades, that kind of thing. But I, but I mean, so beyond that, I would say in terms of our everyday lives, uh, you know, when, when people heard the news about Roe versus Wade um, a couple of days ago, gender and sexuality may have, you know, for many people moved to the, moved to the fore you know, moved to the foreground to the center um, of questions of, you know, what mattered in, in that minute. And then, uh, but as we, as, as we shift to other moments and other contexts, it might be race, right? So for somebody who is, who's the victim of police, police violence for, you know, doing nothing, but kind of walking down the street, um, that might be a moment where, where all of a sudden race become race out, outstrips everything. Um, as the most important um, aspect of identity. I mean, so if capitalism and nationalisms sort of shape the world that we live in on, on this broad kind of historical scale, then we, we can see how, you know, capitalism and nationalism, both of those are concerned, you know, th- these are the, those are the things that that allow race and gender, as we know them, to take shape, right? So they're not unrelated to, to, to race and 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 gender, those kinds of things. I
0: would say that makes sense, especially when not to like talk about Roe v. Wade again. But as you were like talking about that, I f- I feel like all of that is even informed by capitalism, like you were talking about, and it makes gender and sexuality and race more important. But it's all based on those like decisions, and like in a capitalist society, like that's kind of really informs identity, yeah, yeah, I think
3: yeah. it made sense, and i mean i i I didn't mention religion in any of that, which is kind of weird things <laughs> <I'm in> <laughs> studies, but um maybe I didn't because it's it's so hard for me to say I mean just like anything else, exactly how religion religion doesn't have, you know, some determinate impact on Mm -hmm. individuals and cultures, right? Um, so the role religion would play in any of these, you know, recent global events that we've been looking at is, is complicated, um, and often contradictory, those kinds of things, but, uh, but certainly, yeah it it many it, in many moments our our sort of religious and spiritual commitments can sort of overshadow everything else about our identities in moments where we're trying to you know for example contemplate the you know the wider meaning of it all those those sorts of things
2: yeah and i i'd love that we've been able to talk about Like the different influences on identity, whether it be race, religion, culture, where you were born and how you're raised and stuff like that. And it seems to be um, a lot of things can really shape and inform your identity. And um, it seems that, like you said, it can be constant in some things and malleable in others, like this question of what is it like to be Black or what is it like to be this or that. Um, It's a really exciting conversation to have, and it kind of shows you just how many things can be unanswerable. Um, and just like the question of what does it mean to be human, kind of like that question that doesn't seem to be able to be answered. And so I wanted to kind of bring everything back to the course that we took when we talked about this question of what it means to be human. Can you just briefly explain um, what that class was, the post-apocalyptic endoscopy fiction for anybody that doesn't know?
3: Yeah, so that class was, uh, I mean, the what it came out of for me was I just wanted to teach on something different from my, from, uh, teach on something separate from my research specialty. So, uh, that was the idea. And then, you know, I kind I just like, I read and watch sci-fi and post-apocalyptic stuff. Um, so we, yes, yeah, post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction. So yeah. Um, post-apocalyptic fiction deals with you know uh speculation about what the world might look like good or bad after the world as we know it ends um dystopian you know fiction deals with speculation about in the future or an alternative um present or past where life is just um uh society has become repressive and unpleasant um, as opposed to utopian. Utopian would be a perfect world. dystopian would be a broken world, something like that. so uh you know that part's kind of gloomy. Uh, so it's post apocalyptic and dystopian fiction with i i mean i i I've tried to every time I've taught it make the syllabus appropriately focused on concerns about the world becoming dystopian, but also to allow some space for, you know, for some optimism where it's, where it's warranted, or at least open up the question, um, open up the question of optimism versus pessimism, that sort of thing. Uh, So when it comes down to the question of what it means to be human, um, that comes up in the course, a lot of different ways, uh, because, what what the post-apocalyptic scenario allows for is for people to or what it's what it's often used for is a way of imagining what people would be like if society collapsed right and so that i think i think um philosophers social scientists uh and many novelists have understood that as this is like a thought experiment for what human nature really is we could only see human nature if society were we could see human nature in its purest form if society were were absent mm-hmm. um yeah, anyway I, i'll oh, stop there. sorry <laughs>
2: oh, yes so yeah in the the class i remember that second half of the the class specifically with the technological advancements we also um talked about things like transhumanism actually happening right now and in the we talked about um blade runner and um do androids dream of electric sheep and how in these you know works of fiction there are they are um human they seem very human these android like um beings and so it was hard to discern who was human who wasn't especially in the film version where you're seeing people play these kind of androids and so I was um interested in how you know human-like androids play into this you know this barrier between human identity and also how transhumanism is already you know, becoming something that people are experimenting with. And so if you could just explain like transhumanism and, um, what kind of dilemmas that's going to cause for understanding what is human and what those boundaries are.
3: Yeah. Uh, sure. So, uh, maybe I'm not doing transhumanism full justice by saying, you know, literally, more or less literally, it's about going beyond the human, uh, passing beyond the boundary of, of what we currently understand as human. Um, but that, I mean, that can mean different things. So for, for people who identify as transhumanists today, which is, a there are many different groups within that category, but some of them are interested in enhancing, you know, working off of what humanity what what it means to be human today and then enhancing it through expanding or intensifying our sensory capabilities um as we talked about in class that might include expanding the lifespan you know uh, so changing the parameters of of the human and 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 going beyond the limitations of what it means to be human um that but you know philosophically that raises the question of like what is it that is Um, valuable and good about, about being, I mean, the first question is what is essentially human? Um, And if we change aspects of ourselves as, as aspects of ourselves, when, is there a point beyond which we're no longer, we're no longer human? So, I mean, so Many people who identify as transhumanists today, particularly kind of the techie sort of people um, who are who identify as transhumanists, talk about uploading minds to the you know to the to the web or something, Um, and that could mean they many of these folks imagine that that is would would make us immortal, would make them immortal. Um, So is immortality does being immortal make us no longer human? Yeah, and one of the things that we talked about in class, if you remember, was the way that if transhumanism is uh, is about going going beyond what we we might think of as the limitations of being human, then what about the how would the how would access to those enhancements or improvements be distributed across society? Right, mm-hmm. so presumably they would cost money um and and so transhumanist technologies could introduce a, uh, a sort of hierarchy between those who were you know superhuman and those who were uh, below that which you know of course many there's a lot of uh, contemporary sort of nar- popular narratives that focus on that like uh the amazon series the boys um you know so that the this whole question of um, superhuman and human, um, in fiction is a, is a, is a popular sort of, uh, concern. And there's the possibility, I mean, on a personal level, I'm not, I'm pretty skeptical about this sort of uploading your mind to the, to the web kind of thing. Uh, but there is very real possibility for certain kinds of enhancements, uh, what enhancements I'm using the language that Uh, many transhumanists would use uh, that would be only available to people with um, you know certain kinds of genetic engineering um, other kinds of other kinds of prosthetics or whatever that could create um, these sorts of divisions that would be that would just exacerbate inequalities and and create um, different levels of humanity
2: yes Um, thank you so much for joining us today we had a great time talking to you um we loved learning about especially um technological advancements and like especially because we're always looking towards the future and discussing of religions especially learning about brazil today that was very um informative and interesting to learn so thank you so much for joining us and i believe that we are um all done today thank you again um karen
0: is there anything you'd like to say Ah, uh, just thank you. And it was lovely to meet you
3: and have mm-hmm. this conversation. Yeah. You too. Thanks to you. Thanks to you both for inviting me to do this. This is great.
0: Today's episode is a part of IU Bloomington's 2022 semester, Identity and Identification. To learn more about this year's theme, today's guest, or semester events, visit Edu. Themester, Identity and Identification is sponsored by Indiana University's College of Arts and Sciences and created in part by producer Brooklyn Shively and Themester Director Tracy B. Thank you for listening.